So once again, welcome everyone. Really such a delight to, have, to see all of you this evening. For the last couple of weeks, I've, I've mostly been on self-retreat out in the woods. And it's a, it's a place my partner and I have gone, gone to for a few years now to do retreat. And it, this area, at least from my heart, it feels like such a powerful place to, to, to do retreat, um, as most places in the woods do, at least for me. And I think it's because it, 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 the natural world pulls my heart into this quality of presence of, it pulls it into Dharma practice. And some of you might've experienced this as well, where that place or that retreat center or that area in the woods pulls your heart into practice. It pulls it into presence. And I remember on the second day out, you could say on the beginning of my retreat, I was walking around and I remember feeling the sun and there was a slight breeze blowing on my face and body. And, and I remember the feeling of, of being moved by the greenness and liveliness of, of specific bushes, specific plants and trees that I've, I feel like I've come to know these past few years while practicing in this specific place in the forest. It's so sweet. It felt like I was being greeted by family and friends. And I, I think this is what can come from Dharma practice in nature, which I wanna come back to is practicing amongst family and friends in this way, Dharma friends. And as I continued to walk, I felt this abrupt and stark transition into the forest, the part of the forest that had been completely burned in these past forest fires. So there in, in front of me, I gazed upon the charred remains of standing trees silhouetted in, in this barren background. And off to the side, I saw a mound of ash and debris remaining where a tree once stood. And I remember slowing down in that space and taking it in. It was uh, so emotionally painful. It's something I think some of you have heard me talk about before, but this time it, it felt like for the first time again. You know that feeling, the painful emotional feeling of loss like the loss of a family member or a dear friend, like the loss of kin. And it was the feeling of, of the loss of specific trees and plants that I, I felt like I'd come to know as family, as kin during these past years of practicing out there. And some of you probably know this particular feeling of loss and pain. It's, it is that particular flavor of uh, what I realize is, is when I lose someone that is close to me, it's only in the loss that I realize how deeply they've touched me, how deeply I love them. So is that kind of pain?
And many of you might know this about trees and forests, which kind of came into my heart and mind well, uh, as I made this stark transition into this part of the forest. Now, it's been researched and discovered that many species of trees have been discovered to communicate, you could say, with each other through fungi that are intertwined with their roots in the ground. And it's fascinating, they're, they're sharing information and even nutrients with each other. And it's said that there's uh, 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 research to show that in some way they can feel the loss of the trees in, in their web that die. And so for me, from my heart and how I relate to the natural world, it, it felt like, at least, in, at least in my heart, like I could feel their grief, the, the trees surrounding the burnt area, because it was like this gash uh, that was burned in the forest here. That huge line actually that went on for such a long time. And it was somehow in that space I, I was in uh, with them that, that it felt like there was this field of grief. Because in my heart, it was like, oh, these trees and plants who had survived the fire were feeling the loss of their kin, their family. And of course, feel free to take this literally or poetically, whichever way resonates for you. Their kin had died. These fellow plants and trees who had shared so many days with them of stretching out, up and out, to gain sunlight, extending deeper into the earth with their roots, sharing beautiful sunny days and those windy days, sharing the challenges of times of drought and the joys of rain, like the rain here today in Flagstaff. And when I say many days that they shared, in some cases, it was hundreds of years of days. I wanna point out some of the trees that I'd noticed that had been burned, that were gone, were hundreds of years old. Huge, immense ponderosa pine trees, large juniper trees, and now they're gone only remnants of charred stumps and others only ash. They're gone, they're, they're dead. And when I've shared the impact of these, that these fires have had upon me because of the intimacy I've had with this part of the forest, one of the most common responses I get from people is, well, forest fires are a natural part of the rhythms of forests. They'll grow back. And I want to point out, that is true. That is so true. We know this. Forest fires are a part of a larger cycle that is important. Right? Forest fires, sometimes they released certain nutrients into the soil, which then can generate growth of new plants, which can then support insects and other invertebrates, which then can be food for yet other animals. Fires can even kill off diseases that are unhealthy for aspects of a thriving forest. 
So I want to acknowledge that. And yet, and yet there is a larger context that I felt like I was also feeling. It's the larger context that I'm sure most of you know about that might, like me, troubles my heart. It breaks my heart. And that larger context is the decimation of so many ecosystems, the devastation of biodiversity that has happened and is happening. I don't know if any of you saw this research that the World Wildlife Fund done, uh, did on uh, animal populations between 1970 and 2016, where they discovered um, statistically that there was a 68% decline in wildlife animal populations because of direct human destruction of wildlife habitat. And this is, of course, now exacerbated by climate change. And, and one way I want to offer you to get a sense of this is, is if you imagine, to imagine for every 100 people you know, 70 of them, let's say, died because there's no food or shelter for them anymore. That's the, that's the level of, of devastation that happened between 1970 and 2016, and of course has continued since 2016. This is globally. This is a global statistic that came from the World Wildlife Fund. And it's here in Flagstaff as well, too, to offer you the larger context. Some of you might notice, you know, to remember the impacts, impacts of drought in this area where there's been a steady decline of precipitation over the last 30 years. It might not feel like it today with all the rain today here in Flagstaff, but this has been a clear trend in this area, less precipitation. This is one of the trends that has also been greatly influenced by climate change here in this area. And many of you hopefully know of the cost that is causing here in this area of Flagstaff. Of, you might know of the huge die-off last year in the Pinion Juniper Forest just north of Flagstaff, where they did through these, these studies that in, in many of these Pinion Juniper Forests north of Flagstaff, in many of the areas, the, the die-off, the rate of die-off of the trees was between 43 and to 47% in many of those areas. 43 to 47% of the trees, such as pinyon and juniper, had died off. And in other areas, the die-off was as high as 80 to 100%. Some of you driving north maybe witnessed seeing some of this. And you take that, and with forest fires, drought makes the regeneration of burnt areas over the long term much, much more challenging, much more dire. So this forest I'm talking about, the forest I was witnessing on my re retreat, it's not just a forest that will easily regenerate from a forest fire like it has in the past, probably for centuries, but rather it's a forest under tremendous stress with the added impact of forest fire. 
stress, it's loss, it's death. It's a bad situation. And this is where Dharma practice comes in for me. And if your heart breaks with such decimation, such of a situation around us, these are reflections that might resonate for you as well. Because it's here where Dharma practice can be so powerful. There's a great Tibetan uh, teacher, Tibetan Lama, actually. He was one of the teachers for for the Dalai Lama, Digul Kensei Rinpoche, who had fled Tibet because of the Chinese invasion in 1959. And someone asked him, which, which I thought was a great question, asked him, you know, what's the purpose of Dharma practice? And I love his, his response. He says, it's to make the best of a bad situation. <laughs> it's Dharma practice. <laughs> That's what we're doing. We, we're making the best of a bad situation ecologically. And for this talk tonight, I want to be clear. It's Tonight, it's not about finding the best ways to respond to this bad situation. And I want to point out finding the best ways to respond to this bad situation, ecological situation, is essential and super important. I'm not here to dis- dismiss that. It's an essential part of navigating the bad situation. Rather, what I want to share with you is how to utilize Dharma practice in a way that allows our hearts to be with this bad situation in an onward leading way. I think this is what Dharma practice does for me. It allows my heart to be in a different place. It it allows it to discover a different way of being with this so that there can be a skillful response that arises out of it an appropriate response to the bad situation, really for all beings. And what I mean by a skillful response is so that I'm not overwhelmed or disconnected and acting out of that unskillfully or a place of inaction in an unskillful way, but rather coming into a place of responsivity. And Many of you know this. This is a big part of this path of the Dharma. You could say it's discovering the islands of refuge that allow us as practitioners to ride the ups and downs of life. This is why we come together, because that's one of these islands of refuge community. Exploring the Dharma path together, discussing it, reflecting on it together, not as some belief, but as an exploration, a journey through mindfulness, through compassion, through collecting the mind, through samadhi, through equanimity, even through gladdening the heart. So many other things like the skill of being with difficult emotions and the list goes on. And I share with you these reflections tonight. Uh, I mean this as a, a way of beginning the conversation and exploration of how the Dharma can support us with such a bad situation rather than sharing with you in a way as if I know all the answers. It's more about beginning this together 
especially ex beginning this exploration of how the Dharma helps us make the best of a bad situation. And tonight I, I wanna share with you just one part of Dharma practice and a, a kind of a contemporary twist on it that, that I found so helpful in my own practice of the Dharma. And that's to utilize a Dharma practice, to utilize a lot of these skills that we're learning to come into a deeper relationship with the natural world. And when I say the natural world, I mean, you could say the unprocessed natural world. Actually, I get this from my partner, Robin, right? You, you can have processed food, it kind of has a certain thing, but unprocessed food is like, it hasn't gone through all those modulations. So I'm talking about the unprocessed natural world, like the woods and the forests. <laughs> So coming into a deep, deeper relationship with the natural world in a way that's embedded and entwined with the Dharma. And to remember for the Buddha, the Buddha held forest dwelling practitioners in high esteem. Often he was encouraging practitioners to go practice in the forest. And this is why he says, as long as practitioners are intent on forest lodgings, dwelling in the forest to practice, you could say, only growth is expected for them. Or you could say only the opening of the heart is expected for them, not decline. So this deeper relationship with, with the natural world. And to begin, I wanna connect this with a, 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 a central vision of this path. And a central vision of this path is that we practice to dispel the Pali word is avidya, ignorance. By practice and through practicing, there's a dispelling of ignorance. There's a monastic by the name of Ajahn Suchito, and he translates this word avidya, which is usually translated as ignorance, as not being in touch. So when my mind, my heart is filled with ignorance, it's like I'm, I'm out of touch. And then that's what the question is, is, is what's needed to get in touch, right? How do I perceive experience in a way that allows me to get in touch with a way that leads to freedom, to awakening, to at least less suffering? And I bring this in because I think it's safe to say that we as a species are fundamentally out of touch with the natural world, with the earth herself. You know, that report that, that I shared with you from the World Wildlife Fund that clarified that nearly 70% of wildlife animal populations have disappeared. The report is, is interesting. It states, the findings are clear. Our relationship with nature is broken. That's, that was the, the conclusion they came to. And when I imagine the Buddha teaching in our contemporary times, I imagine one of the ways is to come to sense and feel how we're so interrelated to the other living beings on this planet. Here we are on this tiny little planet in this vast universe, and there's this intricate web of life happening on this tiny little planet. 
and this misperception that I can get hooked by, which is a perception really that comes from being out of touch, where I see myself as separate and disconnected from that intricate web. And to me, what it is to come in touch with that is to experience other living beings, as I was mentioning at the beginning of this talk, as relatives, as kin, as family, in order to begin to repair this broken relationship. That's one of my invitations to you. What would it be like to explore the feeling of being in relationship with a particular tree or shrub or ant colony or in a, in a relationship with a particular landscape in a way that it feels like, oh, this is part of my family. This is kin. This is a sibling. This is a parent. This is a child. And to spend time with that being to build a relationship with that particular creature or being in the natural world. Not just knowing its scientific name, but to get a feeling sense of the particularities of that being in front of you. Right? To experience your sense of their joys and sorrows of that being. And not just the sorrows. I want to be clear about this. It's not just about the sorrows, the tough stuff that I began with. Because what was so interesting in that scenario that I shared with you is, while I was feeling distraught when viewing the damage of the forest fire, in the next short while, my heart was filled with delight to see these new sprouts of this shrub called Apache plume dotting the landscape. It's incredible. Like everything had been burned. And already Apache plume was, was growing up out of the roots that remained from the, 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 the shrubs that had been burned. And insects had already entered some of the dead wood. And I remember seeing a, a woodpecker was already feasting on the bounty. Right? This joy of regeneration of that forest modulating the sorrow of the decimation. This is relationship. And taking all of that in, not as a way of denying the backdrop that I was talking about, the, the backdrop of the tragic rate of habitat destruction that's happening in this area, which is being compounded by climate crisis, but rather to broaden my view and what's in front of me. And I just want to speak for myself. For me, it feels so much better to be in relationship with my kin, with my family of beings in the natural world, like trees and shrubs and, and even the ants and those flies, rather than estranged from them, rather than being disconnected from my family. It feels good, that relationship, to be in it. And yes, there's a part of me, and maybe some of you can relate to this, that, that can think in a foolish way that, oh, it's too much for me to feel the pain that the natural world's going through. So it'd be better for me just to disconnect, 
And of course, this isn't a conscious thought, but often this is what the human mind does, doesn't it? When something's intense, it has this tendency to look away, to disconnect, to say, oh, this isn't my family. I'd rather be estranged. And for me, what I've discovered when I, when I notice that it feels better to be in relationship is that the deeper my relationship with the natural world or with Mother Earth, you could say, is, the more I feel her support with these challenges that are part of this current predicament. And this is so fascinating because it can seem like, well, if I'm in a deeper relationship, that means I'm going to get more overwhelmed. And I've discovered the opposite. When I'm in a deeper relationship, I feel like I'm more supported. And it's, it's so fascinating, this dynamic that I'm discovering, because it's, it's like the more I practice the Dharma, the, the, the deeper my Dharma practice is, it feels like the natural world reflect, reflects the depth of the Dharma back to me on deeper and deeper levels, that they're intertwined, my Dharma practice and what the, the natural world reflects back to me. She really is my Dharma teacher. And there's a, a practice that the, the Buddha gives his son Rahula that fits into this. There's a in this discourse where he's talking to his son, he says, uh, his son's name is Rahula. He says, Rahula, meditate like the earth. For when you meditate like the earth, pleasant and unpleasant contacts will not overpower your mind. Right? So, so when you meditate like the earth, when you have the feeling sense of being like the earth in your meditation, that feeling gives you the stability to ride those ups and downs of our lives and our world, whether those experiences are pleasant or unpleasant. That's what he's pointing to. And then the Buddha says to Rahula, and I'm paraphrasing here, he basically says, you know, we humans do all kinds of horrible things to Mother Earth, to the natural world, and still she remains steady and stable. This is what I mean, Rahula to meditate like the earth, to remain steady and stable. And how I take this as a contemporary practitioner is, I don't, it's not meaning something superficial, like everything's gonna turn out all right in the end. I think that's, who knows? Rather, what I discover through my practices, the earth, the natural world offers my body a kind of steadiness. You know what I'm talking about? that I can tap into, that I can feel with my body, it feels like when I'm close to her and all her manifestations. It allows me or she's allows me to find that island of stability and steadiness to navigate and to respond to this whole drama of birth and death, this whole drama of creation and destruction that's all around us. So it's in this way I, I am tapping into, I'm participating with this deep equanimity that she offers, this deep steadiness and stability, even in the midst 
of this destruction. And, and I want to be clear, it's, it's not as a way of reinforcing a sense of disconnection or apathy, but as a foundation for being with what's going on and being able to respond and to be able to respond out of love rather than being overwhelmed. And even I feel like when my dharma is deep, she points me to the ultimate island of refuge, which is awakening. And the Buddha speaks to this with this image of awakening. There's a Brahmin student, a student named Kappa who comes to the Buddha and asks the Buddha this question. He says, sir, he's addressing the Buddha here. He says, sir, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being and death and decay overwhelm them. For their sakes, sir, tell me where to find an island. Tell me where there is solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain. Kappa, the Buddha replied, for the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of being, overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana, the extinguished, the cool. There are people who in mindfulness have realized this and are completely cooled here and now. They do not become enslaved working for Mara. They cannot fall into his power. There is an island. It feels like the earth reflects this back to me, that the sense of a possible island of that depth in the midst of all this. And not to be enslaved to Mara, one, under, one way to understand Mara as their representation, seeing Mara as the representation of all my unskillful fears and obsessions and unskillful worries and hatreds. So just to repeat, you know, this is so helpful for me, this aspect of Dharma practice, to make the best of a bad situation, to, to begin to come into deeper relationships with nature, as family, as kin, as siblings, as parents, and to begin to discover the ultimate depths of the Dharma through her, through the earth, to discover the islander islands that allow us to be in the world differently, to allow us to respond to the world more skillfully. And I share this not as an end point, but rather as a beginning, a beginning conversation and exploration. So thank you, thank you for your attention and may this go to the benefit of all beings. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.